Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Thursday, God started dealing with me about hope. Our faith, our, our, our church is, is called Faith. And I went to Ramo Bible Training Center before it was Ramo Bible Training College. And Brother Hagen founded that, and his commission from God was go teach my people faith. So I heard a lot about faith. I've been instructed in faith for, um, you know, the last 34, 35 years. I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon of, of faith. And in, in the crowds that I have always run with, hope has always kind of taken a back seat. In fact, I remember Kenneth Hanga Jr. back in, in, and I'm going back to the early 90s, when we would have camp meeting, we'd have it in the big arena downtown Tulsa. There'd be anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people in this arena for camp meeting. And he was at camp meeting one year and he saw a guy walk in with a t-shirt on that said, hope is a four-letter word. And his point was, because we've all, you know, we've all had these experiences. You ask someone, are you believing for something about a certain situation? And they will answer you, well, I sure hope so. Or you ask them, is God, what is God doing for you in this situation? And their answer is, well, I sure hope so. I hope God's going to answer my prayer. Well, if that is your definition of hope, then hope can be a four-letter word. You're not going to get prayers answered a wishing and a hoping. <coughs> but biblical hope is not a wishing and a hoping. Biblical hope is very, uh, actually it's very similar to biblical faith. And we've had the discussion before about in, in our day and age, people will tell you, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm a person of faith, and I have faith. Well, that's great. I have faith. In fact, when, when this service is all over and everybody's gone home, I'm going to go out to my car, and I'm going to grab my keys, and I'm going to put my keys in the ignition switch, and I'm going to turn that, and I've got all the faith in the world that that car is going to start and take me home. But my faith in my car is limited by my car's ability to answer my faith. And I've had a few times, in fact, uh, before we went to camp meeting just a few weeks ago, I came into church real early, as is my habit. I, I, I get all the air conditioners on and, and get the building cooled down, and I take some time and I pray and I get ready for the service. And then I go home and, and finish any notes I've got, take a shower, you know, make me look this good. What was the laughter for? Wow. My heart just kind of wounded. But we were, that morning, we were planning on leaving for um, um, camp meeting right after service. So we had already preloaded some things in the car. Well, when I got here, it was dark because I come in anywhere from 4 to, to 5.30 you know, whenever things just happen to work out. But it's usually dark when I get here. Well, it was sort of that dusky period of time when I went home and I turned my lights on because when I left it was dark enough that I wanted other cars to see me. I didn't need my lights. But when I got home, for some reason, I didn't hear the little door chime that my lights were on. And I closed the door and I went in, finished getting ready, brought our little red car to church, got home, we finished packing, went to start my car, I didn't even get a click. I mean, that battery, it was dead and gone. I had faith. I fully expected that car. It had just run four hours before. I had faith it was going to start. But my faith failed. Well, my faith didn't fail. But my car couldn't meet my faith. When you just have, I got faith, 
Well, what are you believing on? Well, I'm just believing that God... No, 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 no. What scripture you anchor in your faith to? Because if you're going to have faith apart from the word, your faith is just some kind of some nebulous thing out there. Well, I'm just believing for God's goodness. Well, God is good, but do you have a promise that his goodness will manifest in a particular way for you right now? So our faith has to be anchored in the word, but the question is, how do we get our faith anchored in the word? And the answer to that is we get it anchored in the word by this little four-letter word, hope. Hope anchors my faith. Proof scripture. This is Hebrews 11.1. 1. We all know this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Uh, we don't have these other uh, translations up because um, we don't have them on the thing. But I want, I want to just read this. This is Hebrews 11.1 1 from the message. It says, remember, this is rewriting. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The message says the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, that's faith, this faith is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. I love the way they put that last phrase. Hope, because that's what they're talking about at the end, is the handle on what we can't see. If I can't see something with my normal eyes, how am I going to get hold of it? Well, first of all, I need to see it with my spiritual eyes, with my imagination. This is the American Standard Version of that verse. Because now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. So hope can be a conviction. Um, the um, uh, Passion Translation says, Now faith brings our hopes into reality and becomes the foundation needed to acquire the things we long for. It's all the evidence required to prove what is still unseen. In one sense, our hope is a proof that what the Word says is true in our life. So this word substance, it's translated, we just read it, firm foundation sometimes, assurance. It's the Greek word hypostasis, which is hypo, which means to be under, a hypodermic needle, you go under the skin with the needle. But histomy is the second word, and it means to make something firm or to fix it or to establish it. That, that is the word for, for um, where it says, now faith is the substance. And it literally, the best way to think of that is it's the foundation. If you're going to build a house, you better put a good foundation down. Because if you don't, your walls are going to shift and your walls are going to crack and eventually your house will fall. The foundation has to hold up everything and the bigger the house, the deeper, the stronger the foundation. So faith is my foundation. It sets me firm where I can stand on something. But what am I standing for? That's my hope. That's my expectation. It's the Greek word elepizo, which means to trust or to hopefully trust in something. It's my evidence. It's the proof that what God says is what's going to be my reality. Now, we can have that. One of the, the verses that, that we sang in, in the very first song had the line in it. Um, we, win, we need to win this nation back or win this nation back. And if you ask people right now, what's going on in the United States? People will tell you, we're more divided than ever. Well, when I talk about our country, I still call it the United States. We may be divided on some things, but our real divisions are because we don't talk to one another anymore. Everybody, and part of it is politics, the, 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 and when I say the left, I'm talking about the extreme left. Their, their whole political philosophy is to divide up. It's identity politics. You're identified by your race, you're identified by your socioeconomic group, you're identified, we're identified because we are Christians. And that 
every Christian is the same. In, in, in their mind's eye, people that identify or use identity politics. Well, when you buy into that, and believe me, there are plenty of people on the right that will tell you, I don't buy into identity politics, and yet they will say, those stupid left-wingers, they've just grouped and made a tribe out of left-wingers. And when you do that, you make it an us and them and we, we, we quit communicating because usually when you make it an us and them, it's my group or the smart group. My group's always the smart group. <laughs> Why? Because I'm my favorite person. So I'm always going to people that I put in my group are going to be my favorite people. And the other group used to be, and I'm going back used to be, and I'm not so sure how much of this was actuality and how much of it was just our kind of, we talked about it, we really didn't live it out. But our, our, the other groups don't just become different. They don't just become misinformed or wrong. They become evil. And it's when you make that last distinction that you get in trouble. Because... As Christians, and that is our tribe, I will gladly be identified in the tribe of being a Christian. Because that is the most important identifier in my life. I don't identify my life as a heterosexual male. I don't identify my life as a white man. I'm both of those. My prime identification is I am a person of Christ. I am in Him and He is in me. And he is, he is the leader, he's the director, he's the person who gives my life direction. And ultimately, I will, if, if he tarries and my body dies, which it will someday, I'm going to heaven to be with him. If he comes back before my body wears out, then I'll meet him in the air. But that's my identification. But that identification recognizes at the core that Jesus died for every human soul every human being has intrinsic value they are valuable just because they are a human and i don't care if they're black i don't care if they're white i don't care if they're as paul said male female barbarian scythian in other words educated uneducated None of that matters. None of the identifiers you can put on anybody matters. If Christ died for them, they're valuable, and I need to be welcoming. The one thing about our tribe, about our group, is we invite everyone to join our group with no preconditions. The only condition is, is to join our group, you have to pledge loyalty to our leader, Jesus. You have to say, you're my, my Savior and you're my Lord. And when I do that, then I can come into the group and I'm part of the group, whether I'm rich, poor, educated, uneducated. The thing I love about churches, you can go to churches and if you go to a bigger church, you'll see this. You'll see a guy who's a lawyer in a $2,000 suit sitting next to a guy who wears a uniform with his name on the, on the shirt every day and has no education at all. And they're both raising their hands, praising the same God. They're both friendly to one another. They both have uh, camaraderie and conversations and fellowship because of who Jesus is in their life, not because of their economics or their education or their favorite sports teams. I mean, I'm even accepted in here and I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. I mean, try being that for a while in Indianapolis. It's a wonder my car's not egged during football season. My point is, we have, if we identify, that's where our hope lies and that's where our faith lies, ultimately. But we have to, we can have generalized faith. I'm believing for my country to be united because united is better than divided. Jesus said it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln quoted him. A house divided will fall. And we came really close during Lincoln's term. I'm hoping we're not going there again. But who knows? But for our hope, our general hope is that we are on God's mind. 
God's constantly thinking about us. I've used the expression, you walk into to heaven's kitchen, my picture's on, on the refrigerator. Why? Because God's constantly thinking about me. I am his favorite. Now, you can say at the same time that when you go into heaven's kitchen, that your picture's on his refrigerator. Why? Because he's an individual God. He has a kitchen that's just about me. And he has a kitchen that's just about you. Now those two can't be true, but they are true. The same way you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are separate yet one. Now if you can explain that one, I can explain how he can have two kitchens and it's the same kitchen, but they're both different. It's God. And I am his favorite. He thinks about me all day, every day. John, how can I help you? It's always for good and not for evil. My proof of that, John 10, 10. Everybody knows this verse. Thief does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I have come that they, us, me, may have life and that have it more abundantly. God's wish for me is to have an abundant life. That's all his thoughts are towards us. Old Testament, whether New Testament or Old, Old Testament proofs in Jeremiah 29, verse 11 through 13. For I know, and, and keep in mind, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. He was weeping because they're in captivity. They're heading to captivity or in captivity. And Jeremiah is the one delivering the message day after day after day. He's going to get thrown in prison, a horrible prison. It's not like our prisons. Our prisons are, are hotels with five-star um, accommodations compared to what Jeremiah faced. And Jeremiah did it because he was speaking the truth to the nation and they didn't want to hear it. You're going into captivity because you've sinned. But in the midst of that, in the midst of the message, you are going to go and be punished as a nation. Jeremiah makes this statement. He says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. In the midst of God's message, you've sinned and you're going to be punished. I'm telling you in the midst of that, that I think thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. It doesn't start until you realize God's thinking of me for good and not evil and it gives you hope. It gives you hope that God's not mad at me. There is nothing that will drive you to, to uh, despair any quick, quicker than thinking God's angry at me. What are you going to do? If God's angry at you, what hope is there for you? I mean, I've, I've said this before. When I was in, in, you know, I call them my hell years. From about 16 to 27, that 11, 12 year period in there. I felt like I was in the whack-a-mole game and God had the mallet. You poke your head up, he's going to whack you and he's going to hit you hard and knock you back in that hole. And every time, it didn't matter where you popped up, he was going to hit you. God was angry at me and everything bad in my life was God. Nobody, you, you would think a kid that had been raised in church, I can never remember a time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, from his, my first memories, my first memories are of, of being in church. I had never registered John 10.10. 10. Nobody had ever stopped to say, we have an enemy and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And we have a good God who wants to bless you and give you abundant life. If I had just known that one verse, that's all you had to know. God wants to bless you abundantly and the devil wants to steal kill and destroy everything you have that verse will explain life to anybody twice paul says even a wayfaring fool cannot miss this well i had a lot of years of being a wayfaring fool because i was missing it because nobody taught me that one verse now <clears throat> let's go back to zechariah because i'm still I'm, I'm preaching on hope i realize I'm all over the map here, but that's okay. I like chasing squirrels. 
Zechariah 9, Zechariah is one of those Old Testament books that speaks, uh, it, it, it's almost apocalyptic. It's not almost. It is one of the Old Testament apocalyptic um, books. And in the, the ninth chapter, Zechariah is talking about um, the, the first and second coming of the Lord. Let me just throw this out there, and I'll, I'll have to, maybe someday we'll teach on end times and I can expand on this. But the church age was a mystery. Nobody knew the church age was coming. That's why when you read in Acts, when, just before Jesus ascended, the disciples looked at Jesus and he said, I'm going to go away and they're all, their heads are about to explode. Well, I know you went away when you went to the cross and you died and you were in the grave, but you've resurrected now. What do you mean you're still going away? The reason they thought, and they said, well, wait a minute, what about restoring the kingdom? The Romans are still in charge. You need to kick them out. We need to have Armageddon. We need to wrap this thing up and go on into the new heaven and the new earth. They knew all about those things. They just didn't know there was going to be this long interim of time between the first coming and the second coming because they had verses like verse 9 and 10 of Zechariah 9 that compressed the first and second coming into one thought. The church age was a mystery because God held it in secret because he didn't want the enemy to know that if you send my son to the cross, which he was planning on doing, that was his ultimate goal, kill him in any way. He didn't care if it was a cross or whatever. He just wanted him dead. But if I do that, then I've won. And what he didn't realize was Jesus was the ultimate Trojan horse. He died so that he could get entrance to hell, so that he could unleash heaven in hell and conquer hell and conquer death and conquer sin all through that sacrifice. And then when he came out, instead of coming out and immediately going into the new heaven and the new earth, he said, now I'm going to go back to heaven and you all occupy till I come back. And they're scratching their heads saying, what do you occupy? What are you talking about? Let me, let me show you this. Verse 9, Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 is the first coming. Verse 10 is the second coming. One of the things about Zechariah, it's one of the most quoted in, uh, Old Testament books in the, in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, because it talks about the, the first coming so much. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is quoted in Matthew 21, 5 and in John 12, 15. It's about Jesus' triumphal entry. He's riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, a, a, a colt. And it's, it was one of the signs of the Messiah. But then you go down to verse 10. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the second coming. That's Jesus saying, I'm coming as the Messiah and I'm coming lowly, riding on a donkey, but then I'm also coming with battle. And I'm coming riding a horse and my bow. Actually, the book of Revelation says, there's a sword that's going to come out of my mouth. That sword is the word of God. It's going to be his words that conquers the enemy. You know, he's going to come, Jude says, he's coming with ten thousands of saints. All of heaven, all of the church, all of the angels of heaven are coming with Jesus. And no one's going to lift a finger in that last battle. Jesus is fighting it all himself with his word. He's going to speak the word. They're going to die by the untold millions. And at the end, he's going to say to one of the angels, I don't know that it says, he's going to say, take him, throw him in the bottomless pit. And one angel... It's going to snatch up Satan like he's powerless. Throw him in the bottomless pit and seal the pit until the end of the millennial reign. Which, he's going to seem powerless because he is powerless. He has no authority. But that's, verse 10 is the second coming. Now, in verse 11 and 12, 
you see the same theme repeated. Verse 11 is the, related to the first coming. Verse 12 is related to the time before the second coming. Verse 11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. That's the first coming. Because of Jesus' shed blood, we are set free. We were prisoners. We were slaves to sin. But notice the second coming, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. We have that. We will have it in its finality when Jesus comes back. But we have it by faith today. Everything, and, and this is just a general rule, but everything that Jesus is going to bring us at the second coming, we can tap into a portion of it today by faith. We're going to get a brand new body. I can tap into that brand new body and walk in a body that um, has no sickness today. Still going to get old. Someday it'll wear out, and I'll have to leave it. Just like you, you neglect your house long enough, it'll fall down around your ears, and you'll ha it'll be condemned, and you'll have to walk out because it's not livable anymore. It happens to buildings. Just part of living in a world that's fallen. We, in the church age, are told, return to our stronghold. What is your stronghold? It's the Word. It's where all of your protection is. Jesus said in Psalm 91, come to the secret place of the Most High. That's where God's Word is. That's where God is. He will put His wings out and protect you. You get under His protection by obeying His Word and seeking His Word. But He says... You prisoners of hope. The best definition I, I, I saw of that is that that's people that in spite of afflictions maintain hope in the covenant-keeping God. That's realizing John 10.10 10 is true. I've got a thief. He's doing his best to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's attacking me on a daily basis. But I also have a God who wants to give me the abundant life, and I have to tap into that. I have to set my hope on that in general. God's on my side. God's not mad at me. As long as you think God's mad at you, I don't know about you, but if Gina and I get in a fuss, it makes it hard to go hang around. Why? Well, she's mad at me. I don't want to go deal with that. I just soon go off and find my cave and hide. When I was a little boy and I knew I've done something wrong, when I get home, I'm going to get it. Guess what? I didn't go home till the last possible minute. I avoided that. Well, it's the same way with God. If I think He's going to punish me when I get around Him, why would I go get around Him? I've been punished. I don't like it. If I, thought, if I know that He has thoughts that want to bless me, Man, I like to go for hang around people that want to bless me. If every time you and I go out to eat, you buy me my dinner, anytime you call me and ask me to go eat, I'm probably going to be available. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds stupid, but it's true. You like people like now there are there you being a mature Christian, you get to the point where you realize you need to go with sometimes with people that you don't may, maybe not enjoy being around because they need to be blessed by you. Okay? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You know it's true. But you do that because you know it's required of you and it's part of being a Christian and, and reaching out to people. But you don't have to be pushed to get around people that are just fun to be around. Do you remember growing up, there was usually one house on the block if you lived in the burbs? Now, if you lived where I was, getting to anybody's house was a chore. You know, it was a five-mile hike to get to somebody's house sometimes, so you just hung out at your own house. But if you lived in the suburbs, you knew on your block there was one house that, man, all the kids loved to go to. That was the cool place to be. Why? Because they usually had cookies. They had some kind of thing going on. Either the parents just let you do whatever they want, or they just there were fun activities, and all the kids flocked to that. That's how we need, we need to get in our heads. 
We want to go hang out with God because he's got our best in mind. But that hope for that, when it, and when it says you prisoners of hope, and I'm, I'm not, the teacher in me just has to come out. That's the Hebrew word tikva. And literally, if you look at where that word came from, it originated with a noun meaning rope. And this is a, a, the verb form, which means to bind. And I'm thinking, well, that's where prisoners come from, except it, that's not the word that's translated prisoners. That word's translated, tikva, meaning to bind, is translated hope. And when I first read that, I thought, oh, wait a minute. My hope is to bind? And then it dawned on me, yes. It binds me to him. If I have hope, I take my thought life. I take how I look at, at, at the world. I've said it before. Everybody is prejudiced. I don't care who you are. It's a human condition. You look at every situation with your, your um, preset of ideas. And when I look at the Bible now, and it took me a while to get here, because like I said, during my hell years, when I was a child, I looked at the Bible childishly. I saw Bible stories. They were cool. You know, you got to act out things in Sunday school, but they didn't mean much more than just cool Bible stories. But when I hit my hell years, when I rebelled, specifically for me, it really started in earnest when God called me back row, right side of the sanctuary, far left end of the pew. It was the fastest way out of the church. That was my seat every Sunday. Every Sunday night and every Wednesday night is where I sat. When the service was over, I was the first one out the door. Right there, Youth Sunday, 1969, God spoke to me. To me, it was an audible voice because I looked to see who said it. He said, my friend was preaching and he came down on the pulpit and announced to the, to the world, I'm called the pastor. And immediately I heard behind me, Skip's not called the pastor, but you are. And my immediate response, I mean, there wasn't a tick of a second between me hearing that and me saying, no, sir, Mm-mm. not going to do that. I, I mean, I, I got as rebellious as I've ever been. I stuck my heels in the dirt and I said, I ain't going that way. That is the most boring life in the world that I could imagine. <laughs> I've had some experiences as a pastor. Boring has never been one of them. But I said, no. And I'm telling you, I closed the door to God and I opened the door to the devil and he beat my brains out. He literally beat my brains out until I came back and said, Lord, forgive me. I will do whatever you want me to do. And when I surrendered, I closed the door to the devil. Not You can never close it permanently and completely, but I opened the door to God. And then I had to start renewing my mind and figure out that God wasn't against me. And the, the shame of it was, and I've said this before too, I got most of my theology that God was against me from other Christians. Because they believed it. They believed that, you know, everything that came in your life, good or bad, all came from God. That's not true. It's just not true. Now, an example of this word, to bind, is in Joshua 2.18. Familiar story. The two, the, the, well, yeah, it was two, two spies went into um, um, Jericho to spy out the city and it got noised abroad. There's two Israelites in the city. Let's, let's find them. Let's capture them. Let's kill them. And they went to Rahab the harlot. She's a prostitute. And I've heard people say, well, no. If you look at that Old Testament word, uh, it's, she was an innkeeper. Well, that's fine and good. That Old Testament word can be translated innkeeper. But you go to the New Testament where it talks about Rahab. It says harlot also, and that Greek word only has one meaning, and it means a prostitute. So they went into a prostitute's business, and they said, we need help, will you hide us? And she said, yes, I will, if you will save me and my family when you guys take over this city, because we've, been, we've heard about you for years. Years and years, we knew we were grasshoppers in, in your sight. Or we were grasshoppers in our own sight because of what God did to the Egyptians through you which was a real eye-opener 
to the spies because they lived 40 years in the wilderness thinking, well, we're just grasshoppers to these people, and those people were terrified of them. But in, in chapter 2, verse 18, they said, this is how we will know not to kill you or your family. When we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which we, you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household into your own home, we're going to be held guiltless for killing them. Everybody you want to save, you bring them into this place and you take this scarlet thread and you bind it and hang it out the window that you're lowering us down. That scarlet thread is the bloodline. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the representation. And you'll see that scarlet thread throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that, the word that says bind this, it's the same Hebrew word, tikva, translated hope. You bind yourself to the blood of Jesus is what, what it's saying. Why is it so in hope, uh, important? For one reason. Life, and if you haven't figured this out, this may come as a shock. But life is hard. Life is tough. Now, here, here's where we get into a problem. For us as modern, especially first world people, because, you know, the, the, there's, we have all the protests sometimes where people want to um, talk bad about the 1%. Well, if you just measure the 1% in our country, there is a 1% group. But if you're going to measure the 1% worldwide, we're all part of the 1%. If you live in the United States, our poorest of the poor is richer than 90% or 99% of most of the people in the world. We live in such comfort and such luxury. Do you realize that David, who was a king, and, and even take David, forget David, take some of the kings of even bigger kingdoms. They never had air conditioning. They never had indoor toilets. When they wanted food, they had to grow their own food. They had to have people grind their own grain. Everything was hard. I, I was talking to Nick earlier, and we were, he was asking me what I was going to preach on. And I said, part of, or I'm preaching on hope, but part of it is this thing. When I tell my story, I, talked, I just mentioned several times my hell years. During my hell years, you have to understand, it started with the death of my father's grandmother who lived with us. I was extremely close to her. We spent every afternoon after school playing cards for years. I played cards with Granny. Granny would bake me fresh break, baked bread, and I would go to her little trailer. We had a trailer behind the house because we had a two-story house, and she had, today she would have a great life because they would have done hip replacements. In the early 60s, you couldn't do hip replacements. And her, literally, her femur had worn its way all the way through her hip bone to where it stuck up. Her one leg was about four or five inches shorter than her other leg. And she walked on that every day. She was in tremendous pain. But every day, she'd bake bread. And every day, I come home from school, and I'd head to Granny's trailer. My older brother, my little brother, I don't know where they were. I was in the trailer eating bread. And I'm telling you, there's nothing, nothing any better than walking into a small little thing, and you're smelling fresh baked bread. But she died... When I was 16, that was a start. She died. Next, my, my brother died, got killed in Vietnam. Then my other um, grandmother died. And then my first daughter died. And then my second daughter died. And then my mother died after battling cancer. I lost six people in my immediate family in about 11 years. And I was ready to put a gun in my mouth and kill myself. I, I, it wasn't a question of... If it was a question of how do I get it done without making a huge mess that everybody has to clean up, or I do a halfway job and I end up sitting in a wheelchair drooling the rest of my life. I didn't want to do either one of those. And in the midst of that, God shows up and He drops hope into my heart. And He did it with one little statement. It's the second time God had ever spoken to me audibly. He did it once in the church when I rebelled and refused. I'm still in rebellion at this point. And I'm sitting on the edge of my, my bed, crying my eyes out, trying to figure out how do I kill myself because I'm sick of life. It's nothing but pain. I don't want to live anymore. And God filled this dark room with light. Not visible light, but I'm telling you there was light in that room. And he said to me, if you will just hold on a little longer, it 
will get better. That one sentence gave me hope. And my life changed. And it changed dramatically. I cannot express to you how... I mean, one day, one moment, I'm in darkness. I'm in despair. All I want to do is die. And the next minute, all I want to do is... I want to get to the better. But I had hope. And that hope transformed me. This is my point, though. I tell that story, and I get teary-eyed. My God, who wouldn't get teary-eyed when you've been through that experience? But I tell that story, and people's hearts break for me. Well, I'm not looking for your pity, but it was hard. But a hundred years ago, that wasn't that uncommon a life story. Two hundred years ago, back to Adam, it was the norm not the exception. It was normal. You buried kids. The number one death, cause of death in women was childbirth. For thousands of years. When you got pregnant, it was, it was just as likely to kill you as to give you happiness. Kids didn't survive. If you, the, the reason they had, you know, families of, 10 and 12, was they would have four, five, six miscarriages. They'd have kids that would die in childhood. Every family lost children. It wasn't an exception. It was the rule. And in the midst of that, God's speaking to them and saying, Guys, I'm out for your best. This is the enemy killing and stealing and destroying. We think it's amazing. How could anybody live that? Because you don't have a choice. That's how life is. In biblical times, everybody's life was that rough. We just think because we're modern man and we've conquered the elements. I come in here, I turn air conditioning on. It can be 90 degrees out there. It's going to be 90 or 72 in here. In the wintertime, it can be zero. It's going to be 70 in here. And we think that's normal. It's not normal. We go to Kroger's or Marsh or where you pick your store and you walk in, February you got grapes, oranges, fresh vegetables. Now they may cost a little more than they do in the summer, but they're still available. And we think that's normal. That's not normal. No one has ever had it as good as we have it. And the least little thing goes wrong and we think, oh my God, I'm being persecuted. We need to get over ourselves. Life can, for most people in the world, and even in our country, as rich as we are, we still have people that go to bed hungry. Now I will tell you, the only reason that happens normally is people are, they're either mentally ill or they, they've got drugs involved in their life. And the kids that, that go to bed hungry, one of those two things is true about their parents or their guardians. Almost every case. If, you're, if you have lack or, or hunger, it's because you have some huge problem and either mental illness or drug abuse is going to be the root of about 90% of it. Does that mean that we don't care? No. We need to try to help them too. But the gospel is the only answer. Believe me, if government programs could fix poverty, it'd be fixed. Because we spent trillions of dollars in the last 50 years on government programs. You can't fix the socioeconomic problems of our country until you fix the heart-sick soul of the individuals in our country. The only way you can take a racist and make them non-racist is to get the racist saved. It's the only thing that works. Now, getting back to hope, because we have to bind hope to us. I want to go real quickly. This is where the laughter should come right there, real quickly. Hebrews 6, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it in the New King James. In your bulletin I gave you, I wrote down under faith bits, um, from 18 to 20 in the message and 17 through 20 in the passion. Because I really like the way they, they read. But let's read it in the New King James first. 
Verse 17, and I'm, I'm taking a bigger group of scripture because I want to get to context. It says, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability of his counsel, that means counsel that cannot change. Immutability is just a 50 cent word that says it doesn't change. He confirmed it by an oath. God took an oath. Most <coughs> men take an oath. I'm, you all know I'm, I'm going to be a witness in, in this case that's coming up probably in the next year or two. And um, when I testify, I will have to swear that I'm going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Used to, you had to put your hand on a Bible and swear by God. Now you just swear. Because there's no higher power than me. So I swear by me. Just ought to tell you where our culture is getting to. But God even took an oath. That's what Paul's talking about here in Hebrews. He says that by two immutable, two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, that, me, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge. That sounds a lot like Zechariah 9.12 that we just read. Flee you to your stronghold, you prisoners of hope. He, he, he said, I want the, my people to have strong consolation that they can run to my refuge, so I'm taking an oath. But we fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Can't go into all of that, but I want, I want you to see. <clears throat> Remember, we taught several weeks ago when we were talking about words, about the temple and the tabernacle. You came in, there was a fence around it. You came in, the first thing you came to was the altar where the blood was shed. Then you went to the brazen lever where you washed up even after the sacrifice. And then you went into the holy place where there was the showbread, which is the bread of God. And there was the, the, the menorah, which is the light of God. And there is the altar of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And after Jesus resurrected, the veil is gone. And you can... Bear, see right into the glory of God that hovers above the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the, 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 the bowl with manna and the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. The glory is on the Word, and if we bask in the light of the Word and consume the bread of the Word and pray the Word, the glory of God will get out of the, the Holy of Holies and get out on us. That's the anointing. That's that manifest hands-on God. He gave us all this as an anchor of our soul. Our soul is our mind, our will, our emotions. And your, ma your mind, your brain, your will, and your emotions need to be anchored. Because when all hell breaks loose, your mind wants to do backflips. It want, your emotions want to do backflips. I've told the, the story when, when Gina died a couple years ago. When they were working on her, my emotions, man, they were unglued. I could hardly talk for crying. So what did they do? I quit talking. I found a verse, I started praying in the Spirit, and I just said the verse and said the verse and said the verse and declared the verse. Why? Because despite my emotions that wanted to just howl at the moon and say, oh my God, why did this happen? I had, the, I had the word that came up on the inside of me that anchored my soul. It directed my thoughts away from your, your wife's dead, your wife's dead, your wife's dead. Everybody, the chaplain to the nurses, take your time. Spend all the time you with. The unspoken message was, she ain't coming out of this. She's alive now, talk to her now because... In a few minutes, she's going to be gone. But the Word anchored me and said, No, no, no. She's going to live and not die. And declare the works of God. <clears throat> the Word anchored my soul. Now, look at Hebrews 6 in the message. Now they start at verse 18. It says, We who have run 
for our very lives to God. Why do you run to God for your very lives when everything's coming against you? Have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God where Jesus running on ahead of us has taken up his permanent post as high priest for us in the order of Melchizedek. My hope is anchored in the very presence of God where Jesus is because I have his word on it and I grab that word and hang on to that word when everything else has fallen apart. When all of my foundations disappear and my life is just moving and shaking and the winds are blowing and howling and I think the house is coming down, I grab the word and that becomes my my foundation where I can stand. But without that hope, without grabbing on to the word and having that word before me, my soul will run a thousand directions and I I can't get to faith. If I don't have the hope, my faith is like a big gun. And it's like handing a three-year-old an AR-50, or um, wow, AR-15. They can shoot it. Three-year-old can shoot that gun. Not in kick. But you don't want to be in a house with a three-year-old with a full-loaded weapon. Because they can't aim it. They don't, have, they don't know where a target is. They don't know where the, the bad guys are. They'll just start shooting anywhere. Why? Because they get frightened and they think, they think shadows in the closet is the boogeyman, so they'll shoot the closet up. They'll shoot anything up because they're full of fear. That's how most Christians are. They don't anchor themselves to the Word and they've got all these weapons, but they're firing off in every direction because their faith has no direction because they haven't attached their faith to the Word because they don't have hope. Hope anchors us to that. Now read the Passion Translation. That's even better. Verse 17, So in the same way, God wanted to end all doubt and confirm it even more forcefully to those who would inherit His promises. That's us. His purpose was unchangeable, so God added His vow to the promise. So it is impossible for God to lie, for we know that His promise and His vow will never change. And now we have run into His heart to hide ourselves in His faithfulness. This is where we find His strength and comfort, for He empowers us to seize what has already been established ahead of time, an unshakable hope. We have this certain hope like a strong, unbreakable anchor holding our souls to God Himself. Our anchor of hope is fastened to the mercy seed which sits in the heavenly realm beyond the sacred threshold and where Jesus, our forerunner, has gone in before us. He is now and forever our royal priesthood like Melchizedek. 2 Peter 1.4, Peter said this, We have been given exceedingly great and precious promises that through those, through those promises, we might be partakers of the divine nature. How do we know? How do we hold on to that divine nature? We attach our hope. We grab that thought. We grab that vision of what God has intended for us and we grab it and hold on to it. And by holding on to it, we can apply our faith to it and see it manifest. Now, is life hard? Of course it's hard. Look at the Bible stories. God called Israel out of Jacob, or out of, excuse me, not out of Jacob, out of Abram. Let me read this verse. This is this always, when I first saw this, this just blew my brain out. Genesis 15, sorry, in verse 13. This is after God cut the covenant with Abram. Jesus came down as a smoking lamp, went through these pieces of the animals, and cut a covenant with the Father in Abram's place. Then he spoke to Abram. He said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. This is to go into Egypt. You're going to be slaves to the Egyptians. And they will afflict them 400 years. 
and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, this is... This is God talking to Abram. I just cut a covenant, an eternal covenant with you, Abram. Jesus cut it with me, but you, he stood in your place. And your descendants, these people that I've called, they're going to go into a nation and be slaves for 400 years. Oh, but don't worry. They're going to come out with a lot of possessions. Well, that's great for the last generation. What about the other generations during that 400 years that just enjoyed slavery? I want my grandkids to prosper, but I don't want the next five, six generations of my grandkids to suffer so that the seventh generation can have great wealth. But notice why God allowed this to His chosen people. Verse 15, Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He just made a covenant with Abram. Your descendants are going to be my chosen generation. They're going to be the Jewish people. But they're going to have to go into slavery for 400 years because this tribe of no good Amorites, their sin's not complete yet. And I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. But I'm going to give them 400 years and put my chosen people in slavery for 400 years to give them a chance. My God, that just, I can't imagine. But that's His mercy. If He does that for the Amorites that He know won't repent, how much more mercy do He has for us? And then you look at Moses, goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, not a chance. And things got rough. They got worse before they got better. They got out of, out of Egypt. They went to the Red Sea. What's God do? He boxes them in between the mountains and the ocean. And then brings Pharaoh's army. Lots of luck, guys. You're between a rock and the water. And your enemies are coming after you. But don't fear. I will split the sea. And it wasn't even a seesaw that cut the sea. Look at Mary. She got pregnant with Jesus. The angel came and said, you're going to become pregnant. Hey, I'm a virgin. This doesn't happen to virgins. Well, it's happening to you. Okay, let it be as your word. And she was pregnant. And she's not married. She's betrothed. She's a virgin. Who's going to believe her? Nobody. Even Joseph didn't believe her. He wanted to put her away privately. He knew she'd been with another man. Because she hadn't been with him. And then the angel comes to Joseph and tells him, no, 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 no. You don't understand. She's pregnant with the Messiah because God made her pregnant, not any man. Now go get beside her. And Joseph went and stood by her through all of the taunts, all of the gossip. And believe me, there was gossip. Can you imagine how hard life was for Mary and Joseph? They're going to, have the, they're going to give birth to the Messiah. They get to Bethlehem and Jesus is about to be born. They don't even have a room. We're going to stick you in a stable. You'd think God would at least, you know, phone ahead and get a room at the, the Y. But no, stable will do. Why? Because God wasn't interested in fanfare. And then at the end of Jesus' life, He doesn't even have a tomb. They had to use a borrowed tomb. Why? He was only going to need it for a couple of days. Why buy a new one? <laughs> if I only need a truck for two days, I'm going to call Clark or I'm going to call Bill and say, can I borrow your truck? I'm not going to go buy a truck. If I'm only going to use it for two days, I'll borrow it from someone who's already got one. Jesus didn't need a tomb just temporarily. So I'll just rent one. And he came out. And I really think the other reason that, that he used a borrowed tomb is God didn't want us setting up an altar at that tomb. One of the greatest tragedies in, in the history of the church is you go to Jerusalem, they got a huge church and a huge memorial around where they think the stable was where Jesus is born, and they, they've got the like thing around the tomb, that they whichever tomb, and there are a couple that are vying. 
But they made altars out of the tomb and the, the, the birthplace. It doesn't matter where Jesus was born. And it doesn't matter where his body was, was buried. What matters is where is he today? That's where our emphasis should be. Forget about the natural things. And then he called Paul to write most of the New Testament. He was murdering Christians. He says, wait a minute, Paul. Come on. Stop that. Do this. The early Christians going through the early persecutions, they, were, they knew Paul's writings. They had some, some inkling. They may not have had all of it in a canon yet. But they knew Paul, Paul, what Paul preached. And you know their head had to nearly explode. Every time we turn around, they're feeding us to the lions. They, they, they had a, a term for it, and I forget what it is, but they would take Christians and literally they would impale them on spikes and soak them in oil and light them off. They were Nero's torches. That's how they lit Rome for many, many weeks. They burned Christians alive. They would impale them, and they weren't dead when they impaled them. They jabbed them down on a big stick. They were still alive, and they'd pour olive oil all over them Wrap them in cloth, light them off. And yet Paul says, John, the truth was still there. I want you to have life and more abundantly. <laughs> they, they burned Uncle Sam. How in the world is this the abundant life? Well, even in, our, in the midst of our troubles, there's always hope. There's always the truth. We can always attach our faith to something. And it doesn't matter how far under the barrel you get, Jesus will bring you out and put you back on your feet. If you grab through your hope the word that He speaks to you, and there's always a word that's pertinent to your need. That's the, in men's prayer yesterday. Somebody was sharing a need they had. And basically the question came up, how, how do you do this? And they all looked at me, and it's like, oh, thank you. I get to answer the hard question. And I had a very easy answer. I don't know. I don't have any idea. Not the first clue. But God does. And you're going to have to pray. You're going to have to get in the Word and seek His heart and pray in the Spirit and seek Him and seek Him and seek Him and seek Him until you get a Word on it. And when He gives you the Word, then you grab onto that Word and you don't let go. That becomes your, your hope. Your hope attaches there and it'll keep your brain straight. And it will anchor your soul. And you can put your faith on whatever it anchors. Amen? exactly what happened with Gina. I've never told the story much, but 20 years ago, I had a heart attack. And in the midst of it, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I ended up, I drove 20 miles to get to somewhere I could call for an ambulance. I don't know if you've ever had a heart attack. Hopefully most of you haven't. But in the midst of a major heart attack, it's not easy to drive. And I'm, I asked the Lord, I said, what do, how do I do this? And He gave me Psalm 73:26. I am the strength of your heart and your portion forever. And I laid my faith on that. I quoted, I bet I quoted that a hundred times in the 20 miles. And it didn't take me, it didn't take me 20 minutes to drive 20 miles. I, I sort of used the speed limit as a suggestion. But when you're, when you're wondering if you're going to live another 10 minutes, you know, so what if you get a speeding ticket? I didn't care. But I made it, got it to the hospital, died, nearly died several times. But, and I've told the story. My cardiologist said, you're done. You'll never work again. You'll never mow your grass again. Ten years, you'll be dead. Your heart's gone. You've lost the whole front wall of your heart. You can't live more than ten years. That, Twenty years ago, this past March, I beat his estimates, doubled his estimates, and I still got another 20 or more left. Because I've already talked to God about it. Well, what, is your heart as strong as it used to be? No, but I don't care. He's the strength of my heart. And I just, every time I get tired and I really, it's like, I can't do this, Lord, I go back to that verse. Lord, you're the strength of my heart. I rely on it as much now as I did 20 years ago. Now, here's what I want to do in closing. There's something in your life. Because I know, I know some of your stories. I don't know all your stories. 
But if there's anything that's a cha- I mean, it's a challenge to you. It's your brain just wants to... Then we're going to sing this song. I want you to worship. This is not a spectator sport. This, you need to look at the words and sing. But if you need to come down here, this altar's open. This is when you seek God. Come get it before Him. Say, Lord, I need an answer. I need a scripture. I need something to anchor. Jesus is calling us right now. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.